Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello and welcome. My name is Julian Toth and you are listening to Sustainability in Finance. The following episode is an audio recording of a panel discussion from the CE Sustainable Finance Summit, the largest conference of its kind in the region, which took place in Prague in May 2022. Good afternoon and thank you for coming and being here with us. My name is Veselina Karolampieva. I'm a senior counsel at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. It's my pleasure today to speak to you here in the conference room and also to the audience, the virtual audience about business and non-financial reporting. We have an excellent panel. So the focus on sustainability has grown over the years, which has also increased pressures from investors, from regulators, from customers. Businesses are demanded to respond on these increased pressures by reporting on their environmental, social, and governance contributions. Institutional investors referred to evolving ESG reporting demands as a tectonic shift, where more and more people, investors, understand that environmental, social and governance risks or ESG risks are likely to constitute investment risk. So policymakers, the EU and financial regulators are developing requirements for non-financial disclosure in order to strengthen the foundation for sustainable finance, but also to avoid a disruption of the financial systems. At the same time, as we have heard in earlier panels, the world's, reading, the world's leading sustainability reporting standards are committed to creating a unified and comprehensive ESG standards reporting framework. So there is a growing consensus today we have seen in the panels in the morning that ESG criteria are critical for a full assessment of the corporate risk and performance. And sustainability is key for driving both external customer and internal stakeholder value. Today in this panel, we would like to explore a few questions relevant to businesses in Central and Eastern Europe. In particular, we will analyze the emerging EU sustainability reporting regulations, requirements and standards. What is the impact they will have on Central European Uh, Central and Eastern European businesses in the short and medium term. We would like to hear from our panelists also what is the current business practices? Are there significant gaps? How we can bridge these gaps? What's the role of the various stakeholders? What is the role of finance in supporting sustainable businesses, but also supporting these businesses that are seeking to transition? So finance directed at supporting the transition to um, sustainable business models. And finally, we would like to discuss what support can various stakeholders offer to businesses. We will hear today from a very esteemed panel. I will first turn to my right to introduce Peter Koblich. Peter is the chairman and CEO at the Prague Stock Exchange. And previous to joining the Prague Stock Exchange, he was a member of numerous boards and held top managerial positions in investment banking in Central Europe. Next to him is Maria Ibis. Maria is a senior manager for sustainability consulting in Central Europe at Deloitte. She is also she's a member of EFRAC, and in her work she supports company in defining 
how in practice they should develop a response to these emerging sustainability reporting requirements. Next to Maria is my colleague Robert Adamschuk. He is a senior environmental advisor at the EBRD and he is a sector coordinator for power projects and heavy industry. Robert is driving the ESG agenda in our policy engagements in the EBRD countries' operations. He is also a member of the EC Platform for Sustainable Finance and represented the bank in the EBRD in the development of the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Next to Robert is Philip Gregor, who is the head of Responsible Companies section at Frank Bolt and a member of Sustainability Reporting Board and EFRAC. So welcome everyone. I would like to turn first to Peter. The first question is really, what's your views on this emerging sustainability reporting framework? How you feel the businesses, your clients listed on the Prague Stock Exchange report, or are they ready for this transformation? Um, what are also your observations of this transition gap of businesses in Central and Eastern Europe in relation to the largest companies or the, you know, their, their peers in Western Europe? Okay, thank you very much. Um, I would say we are, of course, waiting, or most of the companies are waiting for final version of the regulation, which is going to come in, uh, I believe, a couple of months. And uh, because that would somehow frame the the playground, you know, for the non-financial reporting, and obviously there are still some open issues in, the, in this topic. So, so far, you know, what we see is that some of the companies who are bigger, well, sizable, maybe in international indices, are already involved in their non-financial reporting. They, of course, have their reports, as ESG reports, ready. What we are a little bit more focused as a exchange, so, so those companies are, are okay by themselves and they don't need much help. They have their own lawyers and they have their own advisors. Where we would like to focus, obviously, is the help of the smaller companies and uh, especially very small companies which are listed on our markets. And I believe the same situation is, for example, in Poland and, uh, mm -hmm. and Hungary where a lot of the small companies are listed. For them, the non-financial reporting is just another duty which they sometimes don't understand. Very often they don't like, obviously, and they don't see added value of that. And we, of course, would like to help them to bridge these troubled waters. You know, it's like, you know, to, to go through that as smooth, as easy as possible while fulfilling all the requirements, obviously, which are necessary and which have to be fulfilled. That central European view. If I can extend the view on the on the exchange sector, because as, as many of you might know, I'm also president of European Stock Exchange Federation. Mm -hmm. So we are discussing that on pan-European level. I would say the major thing and a major sentence which I want to say is a level playing field. We have difficulties in Europe to get companies listed to grow. We see the couple of markets are working much more smoothly in America. And uh, there is a target of the European Union, a long-term target, to have more companies listed in order to have European pension funds to invest in them and, and, and support the European industry. And we definitely don't want to appear in the situation where listed companies would have tougher regulation, more expensive regulation than unlisted companies. I think the environment doesn't care if the chimney is putting out the CO2 
and it's a property of listed or unlisted company. Actually, if it's listed, at least we know it. If it's unlisted, nobody knows. So we are stressing very much level playing field. And second, most important factor is a proportionality. We hardly can expect that report from the company with market cap of 20 million euro, maybe sales of 10 million euro, going to be uh, the same extent and same depths as the report from the company which market cap is 20 billion euro. Yes, simply, you know, the same report from the same well-known advisor would uh, would probably cost similar money, but in the case of the 20 billion company, it would be 0.0001 of the total cost, and in the smaller company, it would be 1% of the yearly costs. So there will be another disincentive to get listed and to then to go for the ESG report. So level playing field and proportionality. And I would probably end here. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, ready for further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, I would also like to bring Michael, who is with us virtually. <coughs> so Michael Simoni is the Palestinian External Affairs Director at IFRS. Prior to that, in the capacity that I met him, um, he was a leading position at the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. So, Michael, over to you. How do you see now at IFRS the, the emergence of these sustainability frameworks? And in your new role, what's your really advice to businesses in these times of transition when there's still no clear, uh, consistent and coherent reporting frameworks? The landscape as we see it is entering a new phase where we have some decades of practice in sustainability ESG reporting, we have a number of approaches that have have developed. And we have, uh, not by everyone, but by many businesses, often these decades of experience as well. Same as for financial reporting, but the way that financial reporting is standardized is, is after extensive development, we've looked at the uh, what, the, what the market is doing, and if it's working well, adopt it. If it's not working well, then adapt it or change it and, and standardize it. And this is where we are entering. Now, yes, there are uh, a number of developments uh, globally uh, in Europe, at the IFRS Foundation, in the United States, uh, New Zealand, etc., around developing standards. But really, they're sort of coming up to a much lower number of, of standardization projects that, that there were before. And this is really encouraging. Now, what's also encouraging is that while these initiatives are popping up, there are ongoing discussions and their willingness to coordinate. And this will really benefit everyone. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a business, you know, it's, it's important for me to be able to have as much of an efficient reporting process as possible. As an investor, as a user of the information, I want to be able to have consistent information so I can use it with the least amount of effort, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is sort of, we're entering the age of real standardization. And, and after that, of course, you know, at the IFRS Foundation, we are just consulting on, on our initial set of climate and general re- requirement standards uh, for an investor audience. But of course, the sim- similar work is happening on a sort of bigger scale, you know, having, of course, working with things like FRAG, but also the Global Reporting Initiative to build up the sort of bigger landscape of reporting, not just to sort of investors, but other stakeholders as well. So, that's how we see it. And if I can shamelessly use this as a, as, a, as a call to action, you know, this is a time where there are consultations out there, both from, from all of these organizations or entities. And it's a time for us all to hear from you, to hear your views about the future that should be, that should be taking place. 
Wonderful, thank you, Michael. Robert, where does CBRD stand as a large investor in this, in this region? How, what do we require from our clients in terms of climate and broader sustainability reporting? And what's our role as a European bank for reconstruction and development to support businesses in this sustainability transition? Well, first of all, it's uh, also a privilege to be back in the Czech Republic because we are back in the Czech Republic as, uh, as the bank uh, after a few years of abstinence. The bank was set up uh, initially to help with the transition and transformation of centrally planned economies to market-driven. So the market-driven approach is key, but as when we were set up, as part of our DNA, sustainability is actually ingrained in, in the articles founding the bank. So we find ourselves that we're still doing transition, but we're doing now the transition into the green, into the decarbonization and supporting companies uh, and the private sector in achieving those goals. So you could say we've shifted, but not fundamentally, because we do still transition. So our aim is to support uh, investment and also help companies in this process. Uh, and it's part of the DNA. So we're probably the best placed as an IFI in the region to support companies in this transition and transformation. For that purpose, we have both the teams and also technical assistance funds, and there's a climate uh, assistance funds that we're going to, on climate governance that we're going to help companies with, but also helping with the stock exchanges. We started off with Warsaw, we're working now in Prague, uh, we published in Bucharest guidelines on the ESG reporting. And we're trying to bring in some of the work that is being done by EFRAG, by the EU, but also by the International Sustainability Standards Boards, which I know Michael is now also with IFRAG Foundation working, to bring in the best practices on, on reporting. So what can we do? We can support companies, and we do. We are doing some institutional policy support like we are hoping to do now with the Prague uh, Stock Exchange and help to develop. In fact, it, hopefully because of the timeline with EFRAG, to be the cutting edge uh, guidelines in this region, probably in Europe at the time when we publish. So this is a, an excellent, you could say, opportunity to bring the best practices, but also throughout the projects we do and finance, we bring in the ESG and the and environmental sustainability elements. We always had, but we're increasing that. And we're also increasing that in terms of uh, support in some of, the, some of the technical work which we can do. And I think this is where the transition is uh, for us uh, an important area to help companies in our region be cutting edge and uh, develop those practices through both, we do everything from equity loans to, to structural support, uh, to uh, embed that. And that's a requirement of our financing. And it's not only us that is doing this. So I think we are, could say, best prepared because we have a team of 50 people, for instance, just doing this work. In fact, if I look at some of the green, we nearly have 300 people at the bank just doing sustainable finance uh, type work and supporting uh, people in the region. But the private sector is as well uh, moving very fast. If we look at what is happening in terms of, through the EU reporting, but in terms of some of the asset managers, in terms of some of the banks, they all require equator principles, which is very much similar to ESG requirements and uh, more defined on, on project finance level, but a corporate level as well. So I think it is a, a moving target, Probably the most developing since, uh, in my 
28 year career in, in, in this area, a fastest moving uh, time in terms of legislative changes. It's an opportunity and a challenge. And of course, uh, that's what we're trying to help those companies to address those opportunities and ensure the future proofed to the requirements we have. And I agree here with this issue, we can't make it too burdensome. We have to make, take into account what SMEs can do and should do. And you can't compare a 20 billion uh, euro company with a 20 million, but some minimum standards will have to come in. There will be a cost. But I think in the long run of what we're trying to do, and particularly in the geopolitical situation, is the right thing in terms of decarbonization, restructuring, and sustainable in terms of everywhere, not only environment, but also economically, for Europe to be in that place. So we're the bank that hopefully is there to help and assist, but it's not just us, it's, it's many others we work jointly. Definitely, definitely. It can't be done by one player. It's, I think this panel is really about collaboration and working in partnership with all stakeholders. Philip, I'll turn to you now. As a member of the Sustainability Board at EFRAC, I would like you to give us an overview of the emerging sustainability reporting standards. What are the timelines? What businesses should be aware of? And from your practice also, how do you see the readiness in the market here in the Czech Republic to eventually comply when, when these standards and regulations become mandatory over a couple of years' time? Thank you, Veselina, for the question. So it's happening all very quickly. Uh, actually, as we speak, uh, in the next couple of weeks, maybe next week, the European Parliament and the European Council will agree on the final version or final text of the so-called Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. And the text is pretty much set. We know what's in there. One lingering question is, is the issue of, let's say, SMEs, listed SMEs, whether they should be included. Large public as well as private companies will be included, but there is this question of whether smaller companies that do trade their securities on the stock market should be covered as well. So just <laughs> as a reference to the point made earlier. Simultaneously, just two or three weeks ago, EFRAC has published its exposure drafts for the future mandatory European sustainability reporting standards, which would be later turn, turned into law by the European Commission. So there is a very short consultation window. So for those who are interested mm -hmm. to, uh, to comment on, well, the um, ISSB slash IFRS standards, as Mike said, I mean, the time is now, and the time is now also to submit your comments to the public consultation on the EFRAC or European standards. These standards are meant to be compatible. That's, that's the first thing. But they don't look compatible often, so <laughs> that's one thing. But uh, what you need to know is that um, this work will be pretty much over by November. It will then take a couple of months before the European Commission goes through its procedure and adopts it as a delegated act. But in November, basically this November is the end. And by the November, we have a very, very clear idea of what is going to be in the, uh, in the standards. In fact, we already know it. I mean, there's already, there's already quite, uh, quite a big, let's say, certainty on vast majority of the disclosure requirements. The whole thing will apply to companies from 1st January 2024. So that means one thing. Companies have one year now to test to experiment, to try to get their head around some of the more complicated issues, especially the forward-looking information on climate, on climate transition plans. They should start trying to calculate scope three emissions when it comes to the greenhouse gas emissions. We, we have these in a couple of months, 12, maybe 18 months before the whole thing will actually become real. 
So that would be my recommendation, if I, if I may say so. So the 1st of January 2024 is the date that everybody needs to remember. As regards the preparedness of uh, Czech companies, and I would say more broadly, companies in the region, it has been said the large companies know what they're doing, more or less. I'm not saying their reporting is perfect, but they are in a position to quickly adapt. For the vast majority of the 1,000 plus Czech companies that will fall under the new law, this, is, this will be a new story. And even among the most advanced and the biggest companies, we see significant gaps in the quality of, uh, of reporting, especially on that forward-looking information on climate, on targets, on risks, but also on scope-free uh, scope em emissions. We may, we may get to it a bit later. And virtually nobody in the region has a clue what sustainability due diligence means. And that plays a really important role in the whole system for investors, in terms of companies reporting obligations as a criterion in a called minimum safeguards uh, for the taxonomy activities and as a do no significant harm criterion in the SFDR, which is a different do no significant harm than in taxonomy, but let's not go into that. So sustainability due diligence is something that nobody really knows how to do here, and it's not such a trivial thing. It extends to the entire value chain. It is basically about identifying and describing actions to address impacts and risks across the entire value chain. So this is a big challenge facing companies, not just here, but especially here in, uh, let's say, post-transition or in-transition countries. Thank you, Philip. Maria, over to you. In your years of practice advising on sustainability, what is the type of guidance that supports the requests that recently received from your clients? In particular, mid-sized businesses or you know, SMEs, how do you feel the gap there is and what type of support businesses require? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. And actually, I would like to maybe add a few things to what Philippe just has said. What I can offer today is a practical perspective of over 80 ESG strategies, preparation and implementation, and over 100 ESG reports, preparation, and also ESG assurance provided for clients that report. And I think what's very interesting is that the rev transparency revolution that we, I think we can all agree that we are in now. What's happening now on the market concerning ESRS, new regulations, this is the second part of the revolution. And I think that what will be easier is the change for sure for the companies that have started that few years ago. When NFRD was implemented on the market, the goal of the EU Commission was to really focus and to help clients, to, to help business to focus more on the basis of ESG management, policies, more view on procedures. That's why a lot of investors, a lot of stakeholders on the market uh, were pointing out that this is very vague. The regulation is very vague. But there were some companies that already started to use that direction in a very, very mature way as a strategic direction, looking at the new regulations not only as and I hope it will be now today, that's why I'm saying that, not only looking on regulation as the guidance only for a must, only a guidance for certain policies, a list of policies or a list of indicators, that's a burden or a challenge, but those companies started to look at it as a chance, as a chance for success, 
to transform their actually whole business model. And I can say now that looking on the SRSS, so the whole, all thousand pages of, of the new standards, European standards, so it would be a new standard, just like GRI was before. Looking at it in practice, I can say that clients and um, uh, companies that have started that journey before that I mentioned to really implement certain processes, procedures, good practices to start focus on good quality of uh, collected data, they will be really prepared now. But the level of ambition, and I need to absolutely agree, is still very high. Looking at numbers that we can share is um, that in all countries, if we look at Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Croatia, different countries in Central Europe, we can say that the group of leaders that I've mentioned, this is around between 20 and maybe 60. This is very little. And what's happened on the market, looking at numbers, the regulation when, uh, will um, influence over 50,000 of companies mm -hmm. that we are now talking about. So what I would recommend and what's the guidance I think for us is to really look towards experience that is already built on the market to those uh, companies that have started that before to really share experience, to really work together, to share, share experience, to share also the vision of uh, success factors of value that comes out of it, but also challenges and costs. And maybe I can add also a thought that I had at the beginning that I think it doesn't need to be a cost, a huge cost, if companies would like to start preparation now. Because good use of those, I can say it's like also two to three reporting cycles, because we, we look backwards to data and to, to practices that needs to be reported. So if now companies I strongly would like to advise that and, and ask for it on the market. If companies, if we all will really focus on uh, the new regulation and see it in those two perspectives, data, indicators, but also processes and strategic management, then I think it will be easier to plan the transition to that it wouldn't be a revolution, but evolution of ESG management. Definitely. Thank you, Maria. Indeed, I think sharing information and good practices um, as well as costs is very important um, so we have to encourage businesses to, to, to be transparent about it which is not always easy I wanted to ask you to, to elaborate a bit more on the ESG ratings um, and how do you see the, you know the, the benefits and the drawbacks of relying on ESG ratings especially for your clients are investors influenced by the ESG ratings of, of companies. What's still needed there? <laughs> no. <laughs> Very rarely I meet anybody who cares. I think it could be different if you are in some of the traditional investors' landscape. Let's start with a retail, for example. Mm -hmm. I have never met any investor who cared about the ESG whatsoever. Zero. The only ones who mentioned it was that they want to be clever. They said, like, oh, if I buy those companies, you know, who are ESG green, then the big guys will have to buy them. You know, I'll make more money because they will go up. But the, that was the story. The story was not I want to buy them because they are nice. So just if it's you want to rely, rely on retail, forget about it. Yeah? Or even on the bigger private individuals. Uh, so that's one way of thinking. 
for the big international, yeah, well, some of them are, there is a soft pressure or hard pressure on them, you know, to, to follow that. So uh, uh, there already are some of the issuers who are selecting rather no-go list, the, the investment they cannot have. But um, as well, there are not so many of them so far. Sometimes it's completely illogic. If I can give an example, we were just listing uh, 18 months ago the, um, the company which is called CZ Group. You know, it's, it's producing a guns, but like a guns for policemen. You know, now, now it's Colt because they bought American company Colt, so it's highly successful. And they receive from their clients some, or from investors, some indication that they cannot buy them because they are selling guns. They are producing guns. I just found it completely ridiculous, you know, how how this ESG kind of thing can be twisted. You know, what, yeah, what do we expect the police guys will have? You know, they a branch of olives or whatever. It's like, so it, it, you know, sometimes it's really, you know, I like some people smile. You know, so it's 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 really funny. You know, some how how twisted sometimes it is. So with the ratings, you know, I think there's a long way to go. And specifically, there's a long way to go with the indices. I actually don't like these kind of labeling some companies as uninvestable. The zero-one approach, I would, of course, rather see some, some scale where, like we have it in credit rating, obviously, where somebody can choose, you know, to what, what kind of green is already enough for the investor, what kind of brown or a proportion of the brown is, is fine. Sometimes what I hear, you know, I've been a member of High Level Forum for Development of the Capital Markets last two years, and there has been, uh, there have been some voices, you know, that we should not only say that some companies are green, but we should look, point at those who are brown and pro prohibit our pension funds to invest in them. I was freaking, I was ballistic afterwards. I really, it's like, this is the worst idea I ever heard. Because what will happen, the pension funds will sell them, the price will go down, mm -hmm. the private equity and the individuals and the, I don't know, Middle East funds will buy them because they don't care at all. And we will have them out of sight and they will make their profits anyway and the chimneys will continue. So this is the worst thing we can ever do, is to prohibit investments from European pension funds, from European money, from, from our money, you know, because we all gonna have some pension systems into the companies. We should promote that they're getting better, okay, what is better, but definitely it should not be the zero one approach. Completely different topic is the indices, you know, I can speak about the indices, but, but maybe we can, we can come to that in, uh, later on in the discussion. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Completely agreed that these investments really out of these brown industries is definitely not an answer. But I also think that uh, the whole the EU sustainable finance, the, the framework, the taxonomy are really more necessary, not necessarily only a tick box exercise for certification, but it's really about engaging with these businesses, helping them in the transition, supporting them, and of course, ensuring that there is a clear commitment, so there is a development of a reliable, transparent pathway for how their businesses, and you mentioned strategies, how this will transform. Robert, on, on, on this I would like to hear from you more on about the, the finance sector and how investors are looking at this, in particular EBRD, 
Um, how does EBRD engage with these companies that are not necessarily green now? But first, how do they commit? You know, how is this engagement with companies in order to work with them, raise awareness, ensure that there is the necessary advice provided, and second, develop or help them develop and adopt such a transition pathways. So where is ZBRD on this? Before I answer that, I think I, I agree very much with what you say, because otherwise we will be just investing in Google and <laughs> Apple and forget about industry and manufacturing, which is dirty by uh, definition or has environmental impacts. So we have to... Apple is good. As far as Gump said, you know, these fruit companies may of the money. Yeah. <laughs> so it is uh, an area where we, I think, uh, need to be uh, both pragmatic and uh, support. And I think the entire intention of the work that is going at the Commission and Sustainable Finance initiatives and the, an action plan from 18 and then 21 is to set a direction and maybe direct some of the funds and capital into some of the green industry or help with the transition, but not to exclude. And I think this is also the discussions right now at the platform is not just to label green and not green, but actually look at transition and to help companies in that transition process. And this is something we do as the EBRD very much is looking at the transition to, it's easy to invest in the best. It's more difficult to invest in those that plan to do something over the next eight years or 10 years even. And uh, in our financing, we quite often have long-term it's not just two, three years, because that's where the EBRD comes in. It's sometimes political risk, which I think now in Ukraine is, is quite important, where we support our, our investors and clients. It's extremely important to look at these future-proofing over the next eight, ten, sometimes even longer, our tenure. And uh, in that uh, context, to uh, help companies to move in the direction and we have actually a, a, even action plans where a company might not meet all the green cri criteria today, but we set targets in the next five years, for instance. Try to bring them up into the corporate governance. So the big issues on a lot of the ESG and a lot of the climate issues is the strategies. It takes time to develop. It takes even more time to implement, and you need the resources to do that. And that's where EBRD will, uh, comes in through some of the work we try to do is to set some targets, agree a roadmap, and as part of that roadmap, help to finance some of the changes. Now, you can't do it everywhere, and not industries. Steel will still require certain energy and certain processes, and even green steel is a long way off before we can actually fully implement it. Same with cement, and these are very big, intensive industries. So it's setting targets, tangible targets, and looking at how to work on those. And we have our own internal view of the green economy in transition, where we slightly different from the EU uh, approach of where the taxonomy is very much on the economic activity, we look at the use of proceeds and help to define that these use of proceeds are going into the green areas and helping with the transition. Uh, and that means that sometimes our get is not the same as taxonomy alignment, but that uh, helps us to di define and do projects which otherwise would be more difficult if we were just doing taxonomy than that limits. So I think this transition is something that needs to be explored a lot more and developed both in terms of some of the work uh, that EFRAC is doing, but also in terms of the uh, sustainable finance platform, because most of the country, uh, countries of operation are still in a transition. 
and will be. And we need the industry. We need the steel industry. We need the cement industry. We need the power industry. It will not change overnight. And as we're finding here with the solar panels, 80% of them come from China, which is actually human rights issues associated with it and the production and other issues that that uh, takes. So it's not, everything is not as green as it sometimes looks like. And so it's taken a fine balance. And what we're trying to do, I think, and this is uh, the panel, is to enable transparency in the information. And it shouldn't prohibit investment, but transparency helps to have a level playing field and also helps to set a certain benchmark for people to compare if they want to. And I think that's what, what you're saying is it shouldn't be forced because we go into sort of Stalinist areas. It should be allow people to make the option which way to go. And if they want to go more green, they can. Pension funds can as well. But uh, it's, it's, as I say, making investments with the eyes open and the same benchmarks. And we're trying to do that as EBRD to facilitate that with the companies we work with both through the internal, for setting targets, working with advisors to move along that. And that's the added value. And I think this is where much of the finance industry will go. We're seeing a lot of the financial sectors in the private side starting to develop their own procedures and helping companies and seeing as that okay, pro bono sometimes, but, but active support in the transition. At the end of the day, we need to make money as well. So it is that side of sustainability is, of course, in every way sustainable in finance as well. Thank you, Robert. Michael, I'll turn to you on this one. I just want to hear your views from the IFRS perspective, but also more globally now that we have seen also uh, policymakers in the UK in particular, um, tasking uh, working groups to develop such transition pathways for large companies and financial institutions. There are also, you know, after the COP26, the Glasgow Alliance, or so the development of these past pathways for industry. So, you know, what's your views on that and how does IFRS recognize such, um, you know, support to companies and development of these transition pathways? Uh, excellent question. You know, everything we do comes from an investor sort of demand driven perspective. We are, uh, our mission is to inform those investors and we are seeing, you know, have, when we consulted on whether to take this work on, we have seen overwhelming support globally from all corners of the world. And this really signals a real desire from the investment community for more granular and higher quality and, you know, a fuller picture from all businesses that they invest in uh, of these issues. You know, trans transition pathways and other sort of more granular elements are also really helpful points for, you know, for those uh, businesses to take into account and implement and then, of course, report on. So, you know, as we engage the market at the moment in this consultative period, it, you know, these questions come up quite a lot, especially with, uh, within conversations with investors. There is a real desire to go from sort of relative reporting and then sort of high level statements to more concrete transparency on, on what are the plans of the business. Now, of course, we are not a regulator. We produce standards. So whether those are requirements or not, that, that's perhaps driven by jurisdictional requirements, for example, by the European Union, but also by investor demand. Uh, what we can do and we are, we are doing is we are producing those standards to enable businesses to report these. And, and to the best of our ability, we have also referred to these elements and are exploring you know, how to refer to them better 
during this consultation period. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you, Michael. I don't know, Philip, if you want to, to come on this one. Maybe actually on a, on a couple of things, and I'll just throw a couple of ideas out there and mm -hmm. react to the discussion. So, a couple of years ago, five, six years ago, Deutsche Bank's asset management entity, actually, I don't know the name exactly, commissioned the University of Hamburg to carry out a meta-analysis of all research on the correlation between the company's ESG performance and their performance on the capital markets. And that study analyzed 2,000 studies and the, the results was overwhelmingly in support of you know, finding that correlation. I was speaking ESG like 2015 stars, so you know anything goes really. So, but still, you know, there, there, it is a powerful indicator of something. We have an anecdotal evidence here from the Czech Republic that companies that have started this journey two or three years ago, exactly as Maria said, are actually now already getting benefits out of it. They've been able to get green bonds on, on European markets, they get great rates on it, and, and so on and so forth. And also in terms of the uh, use of the modernization fund of the, uh, the, the Czech Republic, Czech Republic's government is, is running, you know, you will see a lot of these companies actually getting most of the money from it because they were ready. So that's just one thought. The, the other thought is that um, the standards that are coming will make this much, much easier, not only for investors who need standardized data, but also for companies. Because right now, it's a mess. Sometimes it's called alphabet soup of reporting standards. Nobody really knows. Everything goes. This thing can be material. This cannot be. You know, some people care about arms, so they make it a criterion, and so on and so forth. So this will be over. There won't be anything like that. And of course, people, I mean, this is a free society. People can, you know, put emphasis on, uh, on whatever they prefer, but the core will be standardized. And the third thing that uh, occurred to me as, as, uh, as you were speaking is that, uh, and actually as um, Robert was mentioning, the, the focus on the targets, this is really what the standards are about. Actually, both the international ones. I mean, Mike, I see you there, so that's why I'm making this gesture. As well as the European ones, and they're actually highly aligned in terms of what needs to be discussed about targets. Now, companies can always say, well, we don't really have targets, that uh, they can say so. But if they do disclose targets, the standards guide them in terms of what level of detail, what granularity. Should these be, you know, like 2050 target, or should these be, you know, targets for every five years, and so on and so forth. So this, this connects to the transition, uh, transition debate. So actually the standards will provide quite a good, well, I wanted to say far plan, <laughs> uh, well, guidance for the, for the companies how to, how to implement all of this. So we'll lose a lot of that uncertainty that is really making ESG such a fringe issue, such, as, such a non-financial issue as it is in the title of this particular panel. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Philip. I, yes, I just wanted to add, because I think this is a key issue on, on some of the disc, this FRAG, in fact, uh, this consultation process. We need to define what is mandatory and uh, auditable and what is good to have or self-certified. It's going to affect costs of audits, but it's also we need to define the minimum benchmarks. And if that's not defined, we will still have the alphabet soup of information. And I think that's my request as well to, to, to EFRAG, is to put in at the end of those ESRS what is mandatory minimum and what is best practice or what, is, so what will be verifiable. Because you need to define for the auditors and the company, scope one, scope two has to be verified, and that's, you could say, gold-plated. Scope three, maybe not. Maybe that is best practice and self-assess because you, the cost of auditing that will be prohibitive for, for many companies. So that has to be defined and if we don't define it, we'll end up with standards which will be like GRI standards which everybody will pick a little bit and something else and we won't be able to compare. 
But that is a cost issue, and this is a, an area where we have to be very careful of that fine balance so that we don't look at uh, you know, the big companies, the <laughs> Pekan Orleans or others in the region, but it's actually going to be that 20 million turnover or 30, 50 million turnover company can actually also provide that information. And sometimes we too focus on the gold-plated big companies and try to impose those standards on the small ones. And I know that from EBRD. Sometimes we look at the big project and you know we did so much due diligence on, on this uh, big project. Let's do the same due diligence on this small wind farm. And in, and you saw your hands, you saw them, well, no, we have to be proportionate, but also risk of uh, assessed. And that, I think, is a key issue to, that will now be in the consultation. So I think I ask everybody to look at those papers and look at the consultation. It's essential. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you make that point in your submission to the public <laughs> consultation, please? I made it to the, the sustainable finance platform, so well, it's going to go. It needs to go to the FRAC yeah, for the process. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, interesting times, quite quite topical. Maria, over to you on these points in particular. On um, you mentioned that clients who have started early in the process already, you know, the ones who reap the benefits and uh, are ready to take the opportunities. But more for the other, the ones that are just starting on their journey right now. What's your view on these minimum benchmarks for smaller companies in terms of reporting? You also talked, spoke about you know, good practices in your advice. To what extent it's really you look at the bespoke advice to specific industries and companies. And so how is this developing now that we still you know, are in this environment of the alphabet soup with different standards, but still, right? It has to be practical, it has to be less costly for the clients, has to be meaningful for investors. Mm -hmm. Looking from the practical point of view, I must say, all types of clients are now really focused in practice on that topic. And I have had experience uh, to work with very big capital groups that have been reporting for a long time, but now they want to use this opportunity to raise their practice, to raise the quality of their governance. That's what I've mentioned before. There are some companies that are starting and then they start with thinking, okay, let's see what's there and let's see what's there for us. What's the, our business case? What parts of coming regulations make sense for us and where they give value? They start to uh, with the kind of gap assessment to see where the gaps concerning, as I mentioned, policies, procedures, indicators. And then also they try to evaluate the existing governance structure to really see Okay, what, what does it mean for uh, the role of CFO? Does it change? What does it mean for our integrated thinking? Do we think in an integrated way? How do we assess financial and non-financial data? The, also the very big point, actually underneath the whole ESRS and all of the EFRS too, is the question about the kind of kitchen, the, the company's procedures and practices. Also, very important question is what kind of functions in my company should be involved and how to now start building this engagement for future. Probably a lot of of guests here. I, I was listening to some conversations held before on the conference. I know there are some of you that reported so far and a lot of back in the years when there were companies that have been starting the practice, they were starting with marketing uh, part, with CSR part, ESG. Now what's happening is we all need to make this jump to the new reality, which means 
that we need to take a look on practices of companies that are now reporting in an integrated way using already GRI, SASB, integrated reporting framework, and TCFD, which is actually uh, repeated in both IFRS and ESRS. So what's happening is the big question, not only about ESG part, marketing, but how to engage controlling and financial reporting, uh, what will be their role in taxonomy calculations even. Who's responsible for that? <laughs> also, IT systems. A, lot, a big question about digitalization. So far, they were not so much in the topic. Also, strategy and risk. This is very much important, and I think we are talking about this today, but uh, maybe not mentioning that so, so deeply. So, and another part is, you probably, maybe we should mention that, that we, we talk about EFRS, about uh, also ESRS, so new standard, European standards, as if it would be a little bit different. SFDR, ESG ratings, but to tell you the truth, if you will look into details of all those pages of ESRS, I think it combines it all. So as you said, Philippe, it will be maybe easier, more convenient guideline, but not as a zero-sum game, as you mentioned. So not like you need to have all to be good and zero <laughs> to be mentioned as a not developing company. But to retreat, we, we all need to treat it as the guidelines, a compass for constant developing, development and raising of the practice, the quality of data. And only then, if we integrate ESG into really DNA of the company, strategic thinking, investment ideas, then it will work. So, for example, this is a chance and a challenge for us all. Calculating taxonomy indicators, it will not change anything unless it will become a part of the whole investment process in the company. And for now, I can assure you, it doesn't happen like that. Companies are in a hurry and they really only focus on calculating the numbers and to put it into report. So the real challenge for us all is to think not only about what's there inside the ESRS, EFRS, but to really think what can be changed because of that. So for example, reporting process doesn't need to be the process where we start with some exploration, we uh, gather data, then a lot of problems, <laughs> we consult, everything a mess comes bigger, and then at the end we think, what actually came out of that, <laughs> the word report? It can be different, it can be with the use, of, it can be easier, it can be more strategic with the use of digital tools. So that data can be gathered really constantly, like on daily basis, automated, doesn't need to be really a, a challenge. Then there is a place and time for people in the organization with involvement of the board and CFOs to really, and important stakeholders like investors, stock exchanges, to really look into those data and to think what does it mean. And maybe I'd like to add maybe two more thoughts that if you look at the level of, let's say, hmm, not quality, but the challenge, I don't know if you would agree, but I think that now three points on the market, like change of GRI, this is happening, and this is also integrated with ESRS and EFRS. Here, the focus is more on the role of the boards, and the same is repeated in those two products on the market. EFRS, I would say that this is the medium, uh, this is a high maturity, 
that is expected from companies, but what does it change? It focuses more on governance, on financial impacts of ESG of climate, and on TCFD. But I think that ESRS, this is the highest now, <laughs> as it is uh, stated, this is the highest actually level of the challenge for the market, because some what we can find there, there are also some data. For example, like how not only what is my ESG strategy as the company, but also what about remuneration? How MBO of the board is linked to ESG performance? So, and you will find there more and more um, points that actually in practice, yes, I know, mm. in, practi in practice, what they do is they pose a question. I think two questions, like really in, in reality, how do we understand transparency? Are we really ready for that? Because to tell you the truth, we all know, we all reporting re reporters, we know it's not easy to really agree in within the company if the company wants to disclose rotation or some other indicators. So I think this is the challenge and the opportunity, but also about the, the question about the culture of the organization. Yeah. So I think this is important. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. Peter, I would like to <laughs> <I can see laughs> your reaction. for you to share your skepticism in the process of linking the remuneration or the, the, the incentives to the ESG performance, but more, more particularly, more broadly, what needs to happen for really integration of ESG into the decision-making of a company, into you know, the uh, identifying opportunities, not only managing short-term risk and having you know, wonderful glossy reports, but becoming part of the corporate culture. So we're talking about an organizational change here, behavioral change. Either we do it through restriction, or there should be, or there should be negative motivation. You know, so, so we make some rule and say that this company, any company, cannot do this or this. You know, the same way as they are now paying taxes. You know, they would be some restricted into something. Uh, I don't know, paying the CO2 allowances. This is the typical example. Yeah? Or there should be a positive motivation. And positive motivation I would find only through the value of the company and through the financial performance of the company. We have, in our liberal democracies, developed a legal system. I'm not a lawyer, but we have developed a legal system where there is a rule of law. And the law, which is uh, governing the management of the company, is called usually corporate code. And it's written there that the management is responsible to the shareholders for the value of the company, full stop. I cannot imagine that it will be written there that is responsible for the value of the company and also happiness of around society. Well, that should be the reward. If the society around is happy, they should buy their stocks and the stock is going to be more valuable and then should be financial performance. But we should not define these goofy soft targets you know, into anything because they are undefiable. So it should be a financial performance. You know, we are living in a capitalist society, in a liberal democracy, and I believe in the rule of law. And I think that's how it should be. <laughs> yes, thank you. I would Maybe if I just, just very add, because <laughs> I, I agree with you that you know, we have to have profit, we have to, the stakeholder, the responsibility in judiciary, of course, uh, accountability is key. But what we're doing in sustainable finance is setting certain agenda. And to be frank, it's a bit like what has happened, let's say, over the 20, 30 years with smoking. You know, 20 years ago here, we would have people smoking and we'd have a, a puff of cloud. It's now not acceptable in this one. 
10 years ago, we would go on a ski slope. No one had a helmet or cycling. No one. Had. Nowadays, if you see someone without a helmet, you think, well, they're a bit strange. They're taking unnecessary risks. And in many ways, this is the way, I think, in the corporate culture, the sustainable, by putting the right systems in place, we're inter inter internalizing and integrating the sustainability into the day-to-day -day thinking of the board, like we do with health and safety. Because managers are personally reliable for, uh, as a CEO for health and safety, you will not allow health and safety issues unnecessary to take place. In the same way, I think in the sustainability area, with the agenda, particularly climate, into some of some uh, issues like diversity, uh, more, more women on boards, this is essential for our healthy democracy to work as well, and uh, has economic Turns. So it is a question of how to integrate that without putting these sort of systems which are democratic and the right incentives to allow uh, companies and management to see the benefits, the same way as health and safety, and or diversity now is coming through. It's not because we want to have something unreasonable. It makes business sense. It's actually also a labor issue. We don't have enough, you know, we're, we're sort of the older gray men here, but well, not yet gray, but uh, they're going there. It is, if we don't, we'll have a labor shortage. It's an essential business criteria, and it's also fair and reasonable. And that's what we're trying to do, I think, with the sustainability side, to give that uh, topic. So this is where I think it's halfway what we say. It's, it can't make it fully, because we need to have profitable companies in Europe to compete in the international markets. We need to have the same benchmarks on the international level, and that's, I think, where Michael here is doing a great job and, and essential. There might be difference with the Europeans, but they will be compatible. But uh, we need to ingrain it into the journal business culture and make it profitable. I hopefully agree with you. You know that you said basically, you know, with the smoking, you know, that was the restriction part. It was a that, restriction. That was part. a decision from the table. I'm fine with that. You know, at least I don't have to put my jacket so, so often to the cleaning, you know, because, you know, if there's no smoking in the pub, it's fine. You know, with me, it's fine. Many people who don't like it because it's a restriction. It's another restriction. You know, in some countries we have it, some countries we don't. You know, with the helmets, restriction comes from the insurance companies, obviously. So, th this is fine and this is financially explainable or the restriction simply was decided in that way. On the targets, I, I don't want to be too harsh, you know, because there is a certain element of flexibility and accountability of the management because the, usually the corporate court and traditional corporate court is saying the management is responsible to the shareholders for creating value, something like that. But it's not written if the creating value should happen in three months or three years in 30 years. So there's always could be an argument argument that some of the ESG or rather E-related projects will pay off in the longer term, although they don't look so great financially in the moment. So if you can prove it with your, with your planning, with your midterm planning, I think that's fully acceptable and uh, everybody would understand it. But um, it would be difficult with the soft measures to press the management to do the steps which you cannot prove or you have to be very creative to prove them. Then the only way it is to do is a restriction. I want to invite Philip here to talk a bit more. We talk about accountability, management, we talk about value creation. What are the duties of the board? I mean, it will be interesting to hear your views. I think you touched upon 
the draft sustainability due diligence directive and some of the proposals that the Commission uh, had about legal duties of, of directors. Could you please elaborate more on that? Thank you, Vasilina. So, I disagree and yet agree with your assessment of corpor <laughs> corporate law and purpose of the corporation. It's not exactly what company law says, but that's how it works. So let's put it there. Well, we've got a, we've got a, we can benefit from one thing, at least when it comes to the climate. And that is that uh, this financial and the other perspective, actually, there's no difference between them. We can look at the issue from the financial maturity perspective or from impact maturity perspective. We arrive at the same conclusion, which is why the international standards, which is their focus on financial materiality and enterprise value, will end up, or the European will end up very similar when it comes to climate reporting uh, obligations. There are behind you these big, uh, I don't know how it's called in English, but you know, info sheets or info <laughs> blogs from uh, facts about climate organization. And actually behind there, there is a trajectory of global warming. And here you can see what is already happening in terms of the regulation, our incentives and so on and so forth. If you put these two together, it becomes clear that no business with major climate impact will survive the next couple of decades, unless they do consider these issues at the board level, unless they do take very careful decisions about what their transition plan will be. It's perfectly legitimate in this system, in this regulatory framework which is being developed and which centers around sustainable finance and reporting, to come to a conclusion, oh, we, are going to, we are going to actually harness the fact that everybody is doing the transition and will just, you know, for example, run these, you know, legacy assets for a while because they will be profitable. It's a perfectly fine business decision. The regulatory strategy of the European Union here is a different than, than that of a China. It's built on a freedom, it's built on the, on, the, on the functioning of the market and it rests on transparency. But what's important is that the board indeed, or the directors indeed, have, the, have an obligation to consider all of this. The standards will make it very clear what is that they need to take a decision on, and the more and uh, the standards will also require certain transparency about how the board goes about those decisions. What kind of decisions they take? Well, that's their business, and it will be up to the market really to say so. So you've got a choice. Either we restrict or regulate, or we do it through this way. It's not a perfect way. It's unnecessarily complicated. Anybody who has ever touched CSFDR or taxonomy knows what I'm talking about. But it's still a market-based uh, market tool which gives flexibility to people to find their pathway. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the problem sometimes is just having the capacity of the board to assess such issues, to be improved over time, to have this topic on the board agenda, because I think that's where we want to go. Once it's there, then the board will assess their competencies and whether the response of the organization is uh, adequate in view of all the pressures that the company is under. We touched also about uh, the concept of materiality, financial materiality, and I would like to hear Michael's views on, particular on double materiality, and how do you how do you see this, and how IFRS will go about it, yeah, in, in view of the use firmly stepping on the double materiality principle. How much time do I have? <laughs> so Philip mentioned a very important point in the context of climate. The, if you look at the tax or the requirement of the two standards, the difference is, is very minor. There is quite a lot of alignment. But the way we sort of think about it these, day and these days, and that reflects our memorandum of understanding that we signed with the Global Reporting Initiative as well as GRI, 
is we look at uh, information needs of different stakeholders and you know, start from that perspective and make sure that each type of stakeholder gets the information they need. Now, it's also important to say that while different stakeholders might need different information, if you look at the investor, for example, there are a lot of impacts that potential impact on enterprise value and so therefore uh, considered material from our perspective as well. So uh, really, I would say the difference is, is not as, as much as some might presume or think. Uh, you know, we'll, see, we'll see how this also uh, develops in other areas of sustainability. But really, uh, a key perspective to look at is, is how do I make sure I get information that my particular stakeholder needs? And how do I make sure I get them in that body? Thanks, Michael. I want to discuss scope one, two, and three emissions. I think this was already raised. So, uh, and also to invite our audience here in the room, but also virtually, to submit their questions. So we'll have 15 minutes, we'll leave for Q&A at the end. Now, first to Philip, uh, I think you mentioned it first about the readiness of companies to report their scope one and two emissions, and what are the difficulties to report on their supply chain, their scope three emissions? So scope one and scope two is trivial. Companies already already have the data. They might not know it, but you know it's just the cost of the service and cost of you know them to get their head around it is relatively or is minimal. It's it's absolutely minimal, just for speaking hours, days of work max. Because they, they do have the data. When it comes to scope three, and that's the emissions on basically what's happening outside, so on in the, uh, in the in the supply chain and in the distribution and in the in the use of the products and disposal, that's 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 scope three. It's much more complicated because well, usually we don't have the data, and most uh, the, the biggest challenge that companies have, and they are trying to implement scope three reporting or calculations, is to get the information on the on the origin of the materials. So ensure traceability, and then you know figure out actually how the, how to translate it into an equivalent of uh, I don't know megatons of, of CO2. Well, scope three methodology. I mean, there's a GHG protocol. The methodology is out there. There's no like you know competing methodologies. There's no alphabet soup. It's all clear, but it's complicated, and it rests on on a number of you know estimations, assumptions, and so on, and, and so on and so forth. And what we see even among the front runners, uh, is that uh, they do calculate some categories of scope free emissions and they skip the others, simply because it's too difficult. And so even the best uh, companies which receive awards in this uh, awards in this in this country for actually having scope free emissions is one of the criteria. You, you look at their emissions and they are just uh, scope free emissions. They are like you know one third of what you would expect in that uh, in that sector. And that's a, that's a powerful indicator that you know there is a major issue there. It's not an insurmountable challenge. It just requires investment. And this is something what Maria actually was saying as well. It takes time to do this properly. And the full audit requirements will not kick in immediately, so companies can actually, you know, uh, don't have to, if I may say so, freak out right now that they wouldn't get the right data. But what's important is to try to get to that moment where you can reasonably say, okay, I've, I know what my scope free emission is, uh, RS or um, RS um, uh, as a company. If that answers yeah, the, the yeah, question, yeah. so it's basically validating what you're saying. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Philip. Maria, so what will be then the minimum steps or assessment a company should do to already start understanding their scope three emissions mm -hmm. um, internally in order to, you know, uh, manage manage their risks and eventually if they want to be transparent about it. Thank you for that question. 
I absolutely agree that just to start calculating, just as you said, Philippe, what we can add here is that usually when we look at majority of companies that we were working with, scope free stands for around 80 up for 95% of the whole total and like climate footprint of the company looking at scope one, two and three. So this is the big question about how much strategic decisions and risk assessment is accurate if those data are not there. So that's why it's good to start. And the, for example, the, the science-based targets initiative, so the, the most credible currently on the market initiative that is focused also on using GAG protocol, they all define 15 categories of scope free, as you've mentioned, Philip. So I think that the best is to really start and, and accept that it's, it will be not full in the first year, but the trigger also included in SBTI, so science-based targets initiative, but also in other methodologies, is to also update accuracy and credibility. So it's company even needs to change those numbers and have, of, of course, good uh, notes in the reports, but to really show uh, how maybe more data uh, were collected from their suppliers, from their partners. So this is the ongoing journey that needs to also involve supply chain and partners, which will be very difficult. And some companies, they already start doing that, not only estimating, but also engaging the whole value chain to work on the common systems, common uh, ways to gather data. The same with uh, banks, but then banks use different, also different kinds of sources of data. I also wanted to show one information that I think shows importance of that, is that not only, this is a very current survey, and it shows not only a climate footprint of scope free, but in general information that business gathers looking at their supply chain. Because we know that there are different ranges, different layers of the supply chain. So in a recent survey of Business Continuity Institute, we can see that 50% of companies, they say that they can see sorry, that the majority of companies, they see half of their supply chain, meaning 50%, this is tier one. So yeah, this is the first layer. So 50% of companies that were uh, in the survey, they, they took part, they see it. But what we see in the survey is that actually 90% of companies, they don't see tier three and four, which is a huge gap concerning risks and also questions that will be posed about biodiversity risks, climate risks. So I think this is the whole, um, I'm constantly coming back maybe to that thought, but the strategic value that we can gain out of it. And maybe one more thing that scope one, two and three and beginning of calculations, this is only the beginning of the question of what to do with it. So how to strategically assess way of decarbonization, not only looking at the different ways and projects that can be implemented, but how to make also use of scenario modeling, which will be difficult, and how to involve financial departments to really work together on answering the question, okay, so how does it, 
impact my business in future in many ways? What are the risks there? So I think that's, yeah. this is important for the boards, uh, the question. Just, I think I, I just want to add that it is also the value chains of the supply chains, uh, a big issue and scope three is, is there. We are getting now, which we didn't speak about other sort of a year ago, is the, of course the geopolitical aspect as well. And uh, in both Europe and, the, and you could say the US, there will be a pressure to look at your supply chains in terms of where or the value change, uh, both from the human rights issues, both in terms of sanctions uh, and uh, also the biodiversity. So if you're buying palm oil, you know that you're going to look at the palm oil. The cocoa is as well, already those companies do that. But solar panels, you've got the supply chains from, from for instance, parts of China, are there potential issues? You're going to have some heavy metals or earth metals and some of the cobalt and or nickel, where does it come from? Are you happy with those suppliers? Or could they be actually interrupted? It's not just the issue of uh, the supply chains that we don't want to do business with somebody because personally I don't believe in that sort of issue. It, but it's doing with open mind to ensure that we have the supply and security for the future for my manufacturing. And uh, it's the business interruption rather than sort of targeting somebody because we don't like their race or something like that. That's, that shouldn't be ever applied. It's whether the biodiversity impacts and climate mm -hmm. changes will impact that supply chain. Will there potentially supply chains in terms of even deliverables or access to ports and other things will have an impact. And we'll have to think about that in the world as it is changing. So there is also a bigger aspect to it, not just the pure environmental view, pure, pure but it's the social, it's the governance side and interacting for the board to be able, and that's what Mr. Vesey said, is that for the board to be able to have a decision and review it long term. So it's more of a strategic assessment by the board which way it goes. And it, of course, impacts bigger companies more than the smaller ones, but it's, an, uh, I think, an element that we look at in a bigger way. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Robert. Yes, very, very comprehensive answer. There are two questions that came, particularly about the scope three emissions. I think we kind of exhausted the topic, but let me see if someone wants to come in. So the questions are, is there anything specific, any specific challenges to the Central and Eastern European region in terms of reporting on scope three? Or is it common challenges amongst Europe? I think you touched upon geopolitical risks and others, but if someone wants to come on this, and then the other one is on the incentives. What are the incentives for businesses to, to report on scope three uh, emissions? I think we should look a bit broadly on that. Yeah, so not necessarily incentives, but how businesses could be first, you know, first comers on that, how they could benefit from being the first, which of course has a lot of risks, especially when it's a bit of uncharted territory. But what is it in for them and if they're transparent about their scope three emissions? Who would like to touch upon either of these questions? I think Michael will. Michael? will but if I say one thing is some sectors will require the scope three more like the automotive and others, because it's their selling going to be a selling issue and in turn marketing issue. So there will be some sectors for whom it will be a very important to have in the supply and value chain that information. You know, there's less, yeah. but it is, uh, but there are drivers, the automotive particularly, but not only, that will require that through the corporate policies. Mm -hmm. But Michael, I think Michael, you would you like to come in on this? Yeah, so I think it's a question of risk management first and foremost for the business. And, and that's a huge incentive that, that means making sure that you have a resilient business and you have a business that you can continue. Uh, the second thing is 
what I'm personally seeing talking to some of the businesses, uh, the very concrete ones are access to capital, uh, lower, lower cost of capital, especially when borrowing. It's simply becoming more increasingly a, a standard sort of part of, of that part of doing business. So and I would say as a business, be selfish. What's in it for me? Think about it. But because there is a, the fact of the matter is there is a lot of uh, good in being aware of those potential risks within your supply chain. And, and so no, don't just disclose this information, but actually make sure you're using it internally as well. And that, that really makes the business case. Pre-emissions makes you, yeah, makes you visible to sustainable finance. This was, it's one of the indicators. It's linked to SFDR. We reported you are moving into the territory of being eligible for green investments. That's, that's the easy one. The other one is that GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, means consumption of energy from fossil fuels. And that means costs, especially you know, in, the, uh, in the current geopolitical context. And higher costs in your supply chain means those supply cha- suppliers are vulnerable. So that can help you to understand where the risks are and simply in terms of you know, maintaining the supply chain and especially in the construction industry, we see what's going on now with, uh, you know, with the supply chains and so on. And the third thing, just to respond uh, directly to the question, are there any specifics in the CE region? No, they are not. I mean, we're speaking about the data. They are the same here or elsewhere. If anything, then local companies have it a little bit easier because there's a little bit more manufacturing in here whereas companies in the West rely a little bit more on the global value chain. At the same time, the preparedness is slightly slightly lower. Yeah, thank you. Thank Can you. I add something? Yes. I could add that maybe perspective additionally that clients demand that. So actually taking into account decarbonization and um, how to put it, maybe in a different way. We can see in many surveys that also in Central Europe, also in Czech Republic, in Poland, in Hungary, clients really demand action from companies uh, towards climate. They demand also uh, carbon-friendly products, services, which is also scope for. This is something also new. And so I think there are a lot of more business advantages coming from that topic. Also gaining new clients, addressing their needs that if they are not fulfilled, company will lose also clients. Also, uh, the concept of um, engagement in the sphere of um, supply chain, it's not new. We have even here IKEA and a lot of more companies that have been doing that for years. And there are many values and uh, facts that can be shared. Also looking at the innovation, engagement of suppliers, Mm -hmm. business continuity, stability, and also assessment of risks and in many fabular cases, if we are a juice producer, there are like different suppliers, maybe it's trivial, but climate change is there. So there's a lot of questions how climate change will also influence my suppliers, even tier four or three, and how it will impact my business. So, and we can look for many more cases. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank on you. On the much. coffee break. Oh. <laughs> yes, I'll just turn to the audience here. If there are any questions, we have about six minutes, so I would invite each of the panelists maybe for one minute to address the businesses that are still contemplating their ESG journey. What is your message to them? What should be you know, next on the agenda of their management or board? What they should do next? First, Peter, next to you. Yeah, well, they should uh, watch around you know, what's coming and 
try to find as cost-effective solution as possible. You know, it's like I heard that the companies, if they start early, it's it's getting it's getting cheaper for them. I somehow don't get it because I. I, I heard a lot of the, that somebody have to be responsible, somebody have to work on it, somebody have to work with the supply chain. That's cost. That's a huge pile of cost. And if it's long term, it's bigger <laughs> than short term. So um, yeah, get prepared and try to find the most cost-effective, cost-effective solution, which still gonna be just enough what is expected from yourself. Thank you, thank you, Maria. Over to you on this. Mm -hmm. I think that's also something that I already heard, but I would, I think I would put it in a few, few short words. Don't, don't wait. Really start now. Plan it well. Allocate budget. Just, just as it was said, it's just like project, ESG transformation project. But also engage your board. And also take a look on different frames or frameworks, things to, to address strategically, not only regulation, ESG ratings, clients' demands, a lot, a lot of more. Look at those data and see what's not compare with your business with, with peers and take a look where the problems really and, and try to foresee risks basing on data that you have see where are the gaps and then yeah. plan it step by step use well two and a half year that is coming then Thanks. you will be on time thank thank you maria robert also from an investor's perspective they say a lot of sustainable finance is available there are not enough projects so what should businesses do then <laughs> i think this is a real problem there's more money chasing mm. green investment than there are projects and that is uh, i think even there's a surplus so it is an area to tap in for companies that they can have the opportunity we need to avoid greenwashing we need to have green wishing issues which are fundamental because I think there will be a lot of that and, and some of the work that we've been to standardize is essential. From a board perspective, I think it is that future-proofing. It's a bit like I do like to compare that with the health and safety and the smoking on the sofa. It's coming. The regulations are coming. Climate is changing. By 2030, there will be big changes. I think the legislation will uh, tighten up rather than uh, not. So even two years for reporting, we need to look at the next eight years that certain things will change. And therefore, from a board perspective, how to propose strategically and set, as, as was outlined, that timeline of when, who, and uh, put some milestones and put some resources, and of course, cost-effective. But from investors, is uh, we will need to also look at the transition and how to help transition. And I think an essential uh, work for both the EU and the EU platform will be to define what is transition and how to do transition, because we can't move away from mm -hmm. gas overnight. We can't, mm -hmm. you know, whether nuclear is or not is, is going to, I think, should be treated separately. We're not going to uh, even moving from coal takes time. So these areas will need to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. We, uh, if we start putting everything into one pile with supply chains and everything else, we won't do solar, won't do anything. So it is a question of, <laughs> yes. of, of uh, being pragmatic. I think that's from uh, this and then taking just, but knowing that there are risks. Pragmatic, supporting the transition. Uh, at the same time, not being slow, but accelerating uh, this transition. Philip, over to you, just in one sentence message to these businesses and I think that was also a provocative question to you coming as a comment it's is it only the large businesses that are profitable that have an interest and actually money to spend resources to invest in ESG reporting 
so very quickly. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, some of the companies we work with that are most fun to work with and who actually are very profitable have, have figured it out are among the small companies because it's often easier for small companies than if you are running this big, huge entity that operates, you know, in multiple countries and, and so on and so forth. That's the beauty of the ESG. It's flexible. It's, it responds to the reality and to the context of the, uh, of the company. But that's also what makes it difficult. You need to consider the situation. You need to consider what is material. So my last sentence, green or ESG or sustainability is the way out of the crisis which is slowly setting on us. So it takes an effort, it takes investment, but that's the only way out of the mess into which we are going into. And I'm not speaking just about climate. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, over to you for your concluding sentence. It's a big part of this is risk management. Whether, whether you're a business, whether you're an investor, if you're a riskier investment, uh, your cost of capital will be higher. The best thing to do is to get started. I think Maria mentioned this. Respond to the consultations, uh, all of them. That helps you make sure you get the most cost-effective result and get started again. That's, that's the most important thing. Yes, continue start and continue the journey. So I would like to thank our panelists for this interesting discussion. Very insightful. I hope the audience enjoyed it. So thank you very much. And a round of applause for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.